Scientist, a Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist, the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Brian Field, who is a physicist, but I'm using a very general term. We'll get into a very uh, specific branch of physics that you're interested in. Thank you, Dr. Field, for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you are uh, an assistant professor at uh, State University of New York, Farmingdale, uh, where you are interested in which field of physics? Well, I do theoretical particle physics, uh, and I also at least dip my toe a little bit into how the experiments of, of uh, particle physics work. Right. So when you say theoretical particle phys- physics, uh, do the experiments that you engage in, are they mostly computational, on a computer, by hand, pen and, pen and pencil, or would you ever find yourself working in any sort of lab, like experimental physicists? Or do you collaborate with experimental physicists ever? I certainly collaborate with the, the kind of physicists who would be holding screwdrivers or um, uh, running wire or things mm-hmm. like that. That, that. that certainly is a class of physicists that, that do that. Um, uh, a lot of the machinery is already done, so it might look a lot like someone working in an IT warehouse where they would be installing motherboards or uh, sensors or things like that um, because the hardware would be built by engineers or contractors, uh, installed by engineers or contractors. But um, my day-to-day is a mix of pen and paper and chalkboard and, mm-hmm. and computer things. Um, it might look more like uh, someone who does data mining, right. you know, uh, yeah. looking at very large data sets. But that's sort of the end of the process. The beginning of the process is, you know, which models are we interested in? How could we tell one from another? Uh, what structures would appear? And then we run a bunch of simulations. We, we make up fake data. We, we sort of look at how we would expect a collider to respond to certain things. And then we actually look inside the, the data for things like uh, that we would, would be expecting. Right. So the, the makeup fake data part is just uh, part of the modeling, to, I, I guess, That's to, right. to figure out. That's right. Particle colliders are very complicated pieces of machinery. Um, the, the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland is the largest machine ever built by man. Uh, and it, uh, it has you know, trillions of, of working parts uh, you know, uh, to it. So, and the, the amount of data we get out of it is surreal. You know, it's petabytes worth of data. So you, you wouldn't jump headlong into that without having some idea right. of what you're looking for. And, you know, there are some signals that are very generic to all kinds of new physics, and there are some signals that are very, very uh, specific. But it, it all comes down to a, a question of probability, you know, when it comes to these sort of things. You can make up a model that would do just about anything, and then you have to realistically ask yourself, would I ever see the signal of a, of a model at the Large Hadron Collider, and if so, how often, and how often would it be faked by other things that, are, that we know about, mm-hmm. what would be the false rates, what would be the, the trigger rates, and how long do we have to run in order to see uh, something like this. And then it's a sort of a, which we prioritize, what's the most important thing to look for, what's the most important thing um, to go after. So let's talk about some of the, this modeling. It's obviously very math-heavy, right? Mathematics, uh, we heard very often, is the, the language of the universe or the language that you use to express ideas in physics. So it, it, a lot of times, obviously, it's, it's a little out of 
my understanding or maybe the public's understanding, when I'm very interested by picking your brain on what's going through your head when you're looking at equations, either on your computer screen or on a blackboard, and how that translates over to what is actually happening in nature. It's kind of like it's kind of like uh, writing scripts, writing code, and then that translating to an animation or something. The, the, the piece that connects the two is what is really interesting to me and kind of something that is missing because I haven't studied it. I haven't put as much time into it as someone like you, for example, has. So could you speak to that a little bit? Boy, I, I could try. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great question, right? Because uh, in some ways at least when, when a sort of a non-specialist looks at an equation, they tend to think of it as this equals that, or this means that, or this implies that, or something. Or something. But it, equations, when I look at them, in, in my experience, they're very dynamic things. You know, they, they mean different things at different times. They have limits in, in mass and energy and time and uh, configurations and things. So when you look at them... In your mind, you try to imagine, you know, not them speaking to you verbally, but sort of imagine what they really imply. You know, like to, to take a very simple example that, that most people would be familiar with, uh, just a simple equation, F equals MA, right? Force is mass times acceleration, yep. Newton's second law. Everybody knows uh, what this means. But then when you think about it very, very carefully, and you think about it for a long time, you know, what it means is there's no forces without accelerations. There's no accelerations without forces. You know? And the thing that connects them is your mass. And you start to think, what kind of mass? Is the mass of F equals MA the same mass of, of uh, the law of gravity, GMM over R squared? Does your inertial mass equal your gravitational mass? And if so, what does that imply? If it didn't, what would that imply? How could we tell? Could we write a, 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 do an experiment to tell the difference between the two? But the equations that we deal with in particle physics, in a way, they're more, I don't want to say unstable. It's not like there's anything wrong with the mathematics, but they're, they imply a lot of connections. So if you look at an equation that talks about the interaction of just two particles, just, say, electrons and photons, that's not all that's in there. You know, as I often describe in, in like a theory of everything kind of class that I teach here, uh, Particle physics is more like a jigsaw puzzle. And if you move one part, it's connected to other pieces. So you can't just say, oh, imagine there's a particle this, and it does something neat. Could we go and find something like that? Because that particle is going to you know, sort of gum up the gears of every other measurement we've ever made. And you have to say, well, how do I introduce something new without it having already been seen or already been uh, experienced? Which is actually a, kind of a problem with, with supersymmetry. And, which is definitely something I want to get to, but uh, speaking to your last point, so if if studying particle physics, for example, is like a jigsaw puzzle, then how do you successfully model that, uh, either in a computer or yeah. on a, by hand, uh, without it? Of course, a model by definition is not exactly reality, right? There are some things you have to abstract away from it, but how do you? That's a computational challenge, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. yeah. So, right. So when you first take a stab at these things, you, know, you say, like, okay, so modern particle physics is, is based on groups, 
And uh, when you study groups in group theory for a very long time, you get a very good feeling for what they imply. Okay, so if I just went out and said, okay, rather than the group of the standard model, SU3, SU2, U1, broken down, it's actually SU3 cross U1 electromagnetic, uh, you know, we sort of look at this as like... So what does that mean? <laughs> oh, okay, so um, there's, there are this very powerful branch of mathematics called group theory, okay, and, and groups are easy to understand, they're, they're just these things that sort of fit these four axioms. They have to translate into each other, two of them make a third, you have to be able to undo them, and you have to be able to have an identity. Those four four thing properties. It doesn't apply to everything. So for, for instance, like not all integers can be multiplied together to, you know, they can always be multiplied together to find other integers, but you can't always get backwards. There's not always an integer that you can multiply to get back to one. Okay, so you can do that with real numbers uh, under multiplication, but you could do groups of integers with addition. You know, you can add negative integers to come back to one. Sure. So integers form a group under addition, but they don't form a group under multiplication. Okay. Okay. So, and then there's more exotic groups, like rotations. You know, like, for you listeners at home, I'm holding my phone, you know, and if I turn it in certain ways, it comes back to look like it did, right? Or if I rotate it, right? So this has a, a symmetry where I can rotate it 180 degrees in one direction or 180 degrees in another, and it kind of comes back to where it was, mm -hmm. okay? And depending on the shape of the object, you might form a group where it could rotate by, by 90 degrees, by 180 degrees, by 360 degrees. Sure. You could imagine spaces where you have to rotate it twice before it comes back to where it was. Mm -hmm. Special objects have that kind of property, and the mind kind of boggles at these things. Well, believe it or not, you can categorize every kind of, of way that you can arrange things into groups as to how they rotate. But I'm not actually talking about physical rotations. I'm actually talking about rotations in this other kind of space uh, of, of particle physics. So when I write down particles, I might say, oh, can... Um, uh, so inside of a, of a proton, there's quarks, you know, up, up, down for a proton. But there's a, they have this color degree of freedom, red, green, and blue, as they, they say now. Now, is there anything that keeps me from relabeling red to green and green to blue and blue to red? No, that's just like one of these rotations I'm talking about. If I relabeled or rearranged all the colors of all the quarks all at once, everywhere in the universe at, at one time, then I come back to where I started with. Okay? That's a symmetry mm -hmm. of the color group of particle physics. Right. Okay? And that's encoded because there's three of them in a group called SU3 color, I see. Okay? which is an unbroken symmetry of particle physics, and it's how we sort of understand why there are no colorless, uh, no colored particles in nature. They always have to appear in colored combinations. And color is a funny word because they're not really, it's not a color that right, you exactly. see them. Yeah. It's just a word, yeah. right? Um, so the standard model is built up out of these funny things. Now, because <clears throat> it's SU3 uh, is the color group, once you study group theory for a long time, you find out that that means certain things, like that there's a certain number of quarks and a certain number of gluons have to come out because you've chosen that group. If you picked another group, if you went off and said, okay, I don't like SU3, I'm going to go SU5, another classic example. All of SU3 fits in there plus some other stuff. The other stuff is, is, is defined. We know what it is based on having studied this group theory. And we can go out and say, oh, do we see this extra stuff that isn't there? The, uh, that, that isn't in an SU3 model. 
And the answer is no, we don't. In fact, with most groups, the real problem is, is that you introduce particles that would make protons decay faster than we've ever seen them decay. We don't really see protons decay. We, we can't measure zero, as we say, and you can't measure infinity, so we just put, we measure, we look at a bunch of protons, we see do any of them decay, and what we know now is that an average proton anywhere in the universe has a, life, a mean lifetime longer than 10 to the 33 years, roughly speaking. The universe is nowhere near that old. It's about 10 to the 18 seconds old, not 10 to the 33 years old. So as far as we can tell, protons are about as stable as they become. Mm. So if you pick something, a different group, you are going to have problems with proton decay unless you make these extra particles, say, super heavy. So protons take a really long time to decay. But then those, again, it's all connected. This Once you pick that thing, Although you don't see it right away, the longer you work at it, you're going to start to see effects of that theory right. sort of muscling in on what you've measured and sort of gumming up what you've already measured. And eventually you just say, well, it can't work that way because we would have seen X, Y, Z by now or these numbers would be a little bit different than we expect or something like that. And that's how we kind of rule out things that we don't so, see. So exactly. you use the, the group theory as a scaffold to start modeling that's right. Whatever interactions you're studying. That's a very modern way of looking at particle physics. Yeah, yes. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and you, so you mentioned the word symmetry a couple of times, and symmetry is is an interesting word in physics because it might not necessarily mean exactly what it means when we use it in common everyday language. Mm -hmm. So could you speak about? Yeah. What exactly is symmetry in physics? So I mean, this this meshes well with your question of kind of like how do we know the difference between math and reality, because there's another super powerful theorem in particle physics called uh, Noether's theorem, and it's, it's a fantastic result. And what it says is, if your theory respects a certain symmetry, it guarantees that there's a certain conserved quantity. Right. So, for instance, uh, so, some very specific examples. If a theory has a general coordinate invariance, which means it doesn't matter where I put my, my 0, 0, 0, it doesn't matter what I call x, y, and z, then you have guaranteed that the theory conserves energy. Hmm. Okay? Those symmetries and conservation quantities are related to each other. If, if you have a um, rotational invariance, you've guaranteed the conservation of angular momentum, and so on and so forth. And it's, it, it seems trivial at first, but then you start to have symmetries inside these things you can't see, like color and you know, uh, isosymmetry and these sort of other things that y you don't see on the surface. They're just the way we've labeled things. Right. But because the symmetry is built in, there are these funny conserved quantities that are just sort of sitting there. So symmetries aren't, like I said, aren't always like, you know, what's up and what's down and what's left and what's right. Yeah. But they can, th that is a very specific example of a very specific um, symmetry conservation relationship. So that sounds somewhat like, and I'm by no means knowledgeable on this at all, but gauge theory? Mm -hmm. Does that kind of tie into what you're talking about right. a little so, bit? So these symmetries are the gauge they symmetries. They are the gauge yes. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I, I, this is bad for a podcast, but <laughs> a, friend of mine, a friend of mine who's now a professor at, Indi at uh, Illinois, he says, you know, rotational symmetry looks like this, 
mm. I'm rotating a paper so it looks the same. And, uh, you know, uh, inversion symmetry looks like this. And then he always says, engage symmetry looks like this. <laughs> he's just sort of waving his hands over it magically because yeah. everything that's changing you can't see. Mm-hmm. It's on the inside, yeah. you know. And, uh, but then he would correct this and say, gauge symmetry is actually something that's more like this. Things change differently in different places mm-hmm. but come back to the same thing. I see. Right. So I guess that's a simple way of describing uh, a theory that... <laughs> That ha- probably has a lot of mathematics underlying it that probably yeah. would be tough to explain. It, right, and so you, yeah. it's a shortcut, right? Mm-hmm. You get a lot for a little you, if you build uh, theories based on groups because it organizes how you calculate things. It knows how to look for things. But it, in the end, there's going to be a certain amount of sort of grunt work as to what's going to come out of it. And a lot of that's been automated. You know, I have to say, you know, if this was 40 years ago or so, you'd probably end up spending a lot of time calculating things like how the coupling constants would change or how uh, different particles would be introduced and, and these certain, there are certain angles that had to do with the, ma- the ratio of different masses of particles. That probably all gets spit out of... People who do this like seriously, you know, trying to think of new models, that, that kind of all gets spit out um, of some Mathematica you know, notebook. Mm-hmm. You know, it calculates all these observables to a certain level and you kind of run with it from there. Okay, this is already going to constrain these sort of things, but it's a, it's a it's a going uh, concern. You know, people actually do these things, and they actually right. try to come up with different ways of, of categorizing the universe. I'm just going to try to slowly wrap my mind around most of the things you're saying. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, so supersymmetry is another thing that you mentioned, and it's something that you work on. So, what exactly is supersymmetry? So. Um, <clears throat> You can approach it in different ways. So in the language of what we were just talking about, supersymmetry posits that for every particle in nature, it has a superpartner. Okay? So uh, every electron has a superelectron called a selectron, add an S. Mm-hmm. Every quark has a partner called a squark. Okay? And every gauge boson you know, has a, a, a another particle. And they're all related uh, via their quantum spin number. Okay? And so you might ask yourself, what, uh, why would you do something like that? And the answer is very hard to, to kind of get at. Okay? So I'm going to put a pin in that description for one second and approach sure. it in another way, and then sure. we'll come back to it. So there's this theorem called the coleman manula theorem. And um, with Sidney Coleman, uh, who went to my undergraduate university, and was a brilliant um, particle physicist at Harvard, who's, who's not with us anymore. And he proved this theorem that said, of all the different ways that you can extend these symmetries that I were talking about, you can only expand the symmetries of space-time in that one way, as supersymmetry expands them. And that any other way, other than the most trivial way of expanding the symmetries of space-time, is is ruled out. Can you define expand? Yeah. So, so like we said, um, uh, you have this symmetry of we can say what's x, y, and z in our universe, but I can't put a group structure. I can't put like uh, an SU three structure on space. Right? That's too complicated. The only way you can do it is by uh, adding particle content that, that do these gauge transformations. Anything else is, is ruled out. It's a no-go theorem. So one way of looking at supersymmetry is 
it's the only way we could extend what we have in any meaningful way. So it's worth, you know, sort of spending our time on it, sort of looking at things. It does supposedly solve some instability problems within the standard model itself, having to do with the mass of the Higgs boson. That's sort of usually like, if you went to any old lecture on supersymmetry and they said, why do we believe in supersymmetry? That's going to be on the list somewhere and probably near the top. I study the Higgs, and that's what I wrote my, my PhD thesis on. So I actually quibble with their exact reasoning as to why that would or wouldn't be a, a good idea. But supersymmetry is this idea that you've introduced all of these partners to all the particles. Okay. Now, like I said, it's a jigsaw puzzle. Right? So if supersymmetry was a real symmetry of nature and it was unbroken, then the world would look very, very different. We'd have a lot of other particles, we'd have mm -hmm. a, a lot of other stuff going on, and it would be strange. So if, if, if I just take a leap here, could that also mean that if here is a Brian, there would be a super Brian? No. No. No, not like that. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, what you might say is that there... Well, so supersymmetric particles for the most part, are not stable, right? They're too heavy, and heavy things decay into light things until you end up with things that are all too light to decay. So because supersymmetry has to be a broken symmetry of nature, because otherwise we'd see it, we'd see it everywhere, right. then supersymmetry should be something that's very, very heavy. Okay? Now, for technical reasons, you can have theories that have a lightest supersymmetric particle that's stable or one that isn't stable. And so part of the, uh, the idea of supersymmetry is you introduce all these particles. They're really heavy. They all decayed a long time ago in the early history of the universe. And floating around out there, there are these super light, uh, heavy by our standards, but light by supersymmetric standards, extra particles that are the lightest supersymmetric particles. They can't decay into anything else because they have this supersymmetric charge that, that you know, like it's conserved. And they're just floating around out there. The only thing that they would interact with would be gravity. So supposedly, these are a dark matter candidate, right? Is that uh, supersymmetry gives you an answer, what is dark matter? It's evidence mm. that we live in a supersymmetric uh, universe. But like I said, there's models where the lightest supersymmetric particle is a, has a charge, electric charge, that would interact with light. It wouldn't be a dark matter candidate at all. Mm -hmm. Or uh, they decay completely, and you're just left with a normal matter, which wouldn't solve this, the, the, the dark matter problem. Or they just uh, have all kinds of bizarre properties that would make them not a good uh, candidate. Um, what we need to know is more about dark matter, how it clumps. Dark matter doesn't seem to, to collide with itself. The sort of the strange thing. It's collisionless even with itself. So if it is a supersymmetric particle, it's because it can't exchange any of its own bosons as it goes by. So it can't deflect. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't collide with itself. And I'm not quite sure how we get around all of these problems. And so you can sometimes solve one or the other, but taken all together, it may yeah. not be dark matter. It may not be dark matter in our space. Right. could be in some other space, and mm -hmm. that's why we don't, we don't see its interactions. Wow. But my real problem with supersymmetry is you have to introduce it in a way that it's invisible <laughs> because we don't see it. Uh -huh. And every day that goes by and the LHC is running, you know, I have this little list here, this is a piece of paper I brought in, is all the, the limits on how, much, how we have not seen supersymmetry. 
know, so oh, wow. today's the last day of May, 2017, and as of today, no supersymmetry. Right. Now, right, in, if we went back five years, uh, you know, we would have no Higgs, right? You know, right. you go back before that, there was no lots of particles. You don't have a particle right up until you have it. If, if tomorrow there's an announcement that, that we see supersymmetry, I, I'm, I'm not going to keep saying it's wrong. I'm just going to say that it's weird, right? <laughs> because it, it's, it's sort of here in a way that it didn't affect anything that we've seen up until this point. Right. We have no smoking gun for supersymmetry. It's just, as of right now, a good idea, I see. Right? right? And but I would say, I guess, just like the Higgs was until it was until we found it. Until you found right? it, right? Yeah, and and you know, the Higgs for a long time. I mean, since I studied it for a really long time, it was confounding because it should have been found earlier than it was. All of the data of the standard model, up until we measured it, said that the Higgs should have been much lighter than it was, hmm. like significantly lighter because of this jigsaw puzzle effect. When you look at everything that's been measured, it's pointing to a missing piece of the Higgs that's much lighter than we actually found it. We found it at 125, and if my memory is serving me right, it should have been something like 70. So as we pushed past 70 and 80 and 90 and 100 and 120 and 121 and 120, we said we're ruling out everything else. Either this thing doesn't exist or we're totally wrong about everything. And we find it, and there's a little bit of tension there. It's not a great agreement, right? But what we should really be thinking is, should we be expecting an agreement, right? Our standard model has no dark matter. Mm. <laughs> doesn't say anything about dark energy. Right. If our standard model worked perfectly without supersymmetry and Higgs and everything fit together like a completely finished jigsaw puzzle, well, that would be even worse because now we're saying that this 97% of the universe we can't see Somehow it doesn't matter with everything else that, that we've, we've measured. It just sort of sits there and it, you know, it doesn't interact with us and it's like two distinct systems, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's good that there's a little bit of, uh, of tension between what we see and, and what we've measured. And there still is room for new stuff in, in the standard model, just not the way we're kind of working with it now. When we introduce, right. whenever we figure out what dark matter Dark energy is how it manifests itself in our, you know, dark matter may be a, com- a geometric effect, right? But whatever dark matter is, there's room in our measurements for it to be added in and to fix certain problems, which I think is a good thing. Wow. So in terms of the, the Higgs being, uh, I actually had a very specific question about that. So there are images of, uh, I guess, the detection of the Higgs from the Large Hadron Collider, and I don't know if this is what the physics looked at or if this is just an image that was released to the public. But it's a, it's a cool image. It looks like it's overlaid on a detector and there are a bunch of colored lines shooting out in different directions. Yes. So what are those, what are those, lines? What are those colored yeah. lines? Yeah. So, um, so for a long time, the only thing we didn't know about the Higgs was what its mass was. Right. All of its properties, all of the way it talks to any of the other particles of the standard model, let's just only standard model to make things easy. Uh, everything was predicted, you know, it, how it coupled, how strongly, what it decayed into. But what we didn't know was how much it weighed. Right? And things can only decay into things that are lighter than they are, in principle. Sure. Okay? So if the Higgs was 100, then it, it could decay into like a Z boson, which is 91 plus some other stuff, right? 
and the Z would decay very quickly into, say, two muons or two taus or, or something like that. So a signature of 100 GeV Higgs would be two muons plus this other stuff from the Higgs. Okay? And if it was a little more heavy, then it would predominantly decay into, say, two bottom quarks. And if it was much heavier, maybe two Ws, or maybe a little bit heavier, then it would be two, two, two tops, or something like that. So once we had the, the, the mass nailed down, we'd know what it should decay into. But we didn't. So we had to turn this problem around and say, of everything we're expecting to see, what are we seeing more of than we should? Right. right? There's a probability. And what we ended up seeing more of was two photons. <laughs> so those lines you're seeing is uh, a particle interaction where you generate a Higgs and it's recoiling off of something else and the Higgs is almost immediately decaying into two photons which are then caught in the electromagnetic part of the detector but they're pointed towards a region of space where their what's called invariant mass adds up to something specific. This has to do with that math where when you look at an equation for a long time, it tells you different things. So when you look at the equations of how particles work in quantum field theory, they form something called a mass shell. It's perhaps a little bit more than we should get into, but what it's telling you is that the mass and momentum of a particle and its energy are all related to each other in a way that if you measure the momentum of, say, these two photons very well, and you know their energy, then you can put them back together as, as if they, they broke apart of a little box of a certain size, a certain mass. Right? So if there was a Higgs of a certain mass decaying consistently, you would see these photons consistently at a certain energy and momentum distribution. They would form a three-dimensional shell, mm -hmm. right, is what it's called. So when you put all these things together, there were more photons, which meant that the Higgs had to be within a very specific mass range. And then it's sort of like a smoking gun. You, you narrow in on it, you look for more and more of these things, and you tune the detector, look for these things, until finally you have overwhelming evidence that there's many more of those particles at that mass than there should be. And that's how we discovered uh, the Higgs. Which I, I should say, just as an aside, in supersymmetry you have five Higgs bosons, uh, for reasons that I can't get into now. But one of them can only be so heavy, and one of them can only be so light, and then there's some charged ones and some other ones. The one that can only be so heavy can only be about 122 GeV in the simplest form of supersymmetry, mm -hmm. which meant that when we found the Higgs at 125, it was just a little too heavy to ever possibly fit into the simplest model of supersymmetry. And there's just no way around it. I mean, you can mm. push and you can pull and you can push things, but because everything's connected, this jigsaw puzzle, if you push the simplest model of supersymmetry, that lightest Higgs, it can just never get there. Now, there's an error bar on the measurement of the Higgs. So I think, it, yeah. I think there's still some very slim possibility that it would fit into that model, but it's really hard. you kind of got to stand on your head you know, in order wow. to get it to work. So when, I guess this is more presented in popular media, but when they say that, when the question is asked, why is it important uh, to find the Higgs boson? Why is it a big discovery? And it said that, okay, the Higgs boson or the Higgs field is what endows other particles with mass? All particles with mass. All particles yes. with mass. Can you explain or try to explain what that means? Yeah, so there's a, uh, there's a very common um, <clears throat> analogy 
uh, for this. And it has multiple parts. So this was actually, there was a contest in Britain, and, uh, and uh, it said, like, who could come up with the best sort of layman explanation of the Higgs effect? So I'm going to steal this, because okay. you know, it's a very common one. Um, so let me ask you, who's your uh, favorite movie star? Mine? Yeah. Let's say Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. Okay, great. <laughs> great, great. Okay. So imagine we're at a cocktail party. Sure. Okay, and there's a lot of people around, but we're evenly spread out. Okay, and then somebody says, Nicolas Cage is coming. Nicolas Cage walks in the room. Okay, and everyone's like, wow, I, I want to meet him. I want to shake his hands. So people kind of mob around him a little bit. So for Nicolas Cage, it's hard for him to walk through the room. He has acquired some mass because as he moves around, because he's famous, people kind of glom onto him and form this little barrier around him. So as he moves around, the cocktail party is like the, the Higgs field and it couples to Nicolas Cage and it makes him more massive than he would be on his own. If there was no one there or nobody knew who he was, he could just walk through, no problem. So the Higgs endows particles by sort of swarming around it in, in this sort of way. Mm. But there's a, now that's where people normally stop this analogy, but there's another part of the analogy, which is, let's say we're at the same cocktail party, and Nicolas Cage is supposed to come, but he hasn't come yet. And somebody at the door says, Nicolas Cage is coming, okay? And we want to make sure that we meet him first. So you and me and Jesker in here, we might all get together in a little glob and wait for him like, we might form little pockets of people and wait for him to walk in so we can kind of mob him and talk to him. So these particles glom to each other, and they sort of move around in little chunks, right? That is the Higgs boson itself. Oh. It forms its own, gives itself mass by forming these little clumps that move around independently of... Nicholas Cage. Every famous person, every particle that enters the Higgs field gets a little glom around it, but the fields form around themselves too, in anticipation in this analogy, in anticipation sure. of someone coming in. Yeah. That's the part that's sometimes dropped from the analogy, but it's mm -hmm. a very important one. Yeah. The Higgs self-couples it gives itself mass as it goes around. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's a really it's a, like I said, it won an award for science communication. Which wow. Is, yeah something close to my heart. It's, yeah. it's a really good uh, way of looking at things. I'm really happy I picked Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I give this example a lot, and it's usually, uh, it's, people usually pick Angelina Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that one makes more sense for yep. people, uh, yep. people uh, glob glob on. globbing on. Uh, so another thing that uh, you work on are the Atlas experiments from CERN. This or uh, so, and and in the Atlas experiment, or I was going to try to explain, but let, let, let's go for your <laughs> summary of what's going on so, there. So, for the record, I'm, I'm currently an inactive part of Atlas, just because sure. of the way the the funding works mm -hmm. to, to be an active member. Uh, but before I was a professor, I was an active member, and I was part. So the the Atlas is a general detector at at, at uh, the the Large Hadron Collider. There's two of them. There's one called. CMS and Atlas, and they're designed differently, and they, they measure different things. They each have their strengths. But they're designed to sort of measure everything that can come out of a particle a collider to some degree. And then there's specialized versions of, of experiments called ALICE and LHCB, and those are specialized experiments that run in the same, at the same time. 
So ATLAS is a, a very large toroidal system. The, the T in ATLAS stands for t t toroid, and it's a, a special kind of magnet that bends particles, which is how we measure their, their momentum. And I was involved in a project called Atlas Forward Protons, which was looking at particles that when they come in, I'm sort of having my hands show a little particle beams collide in here, is when particles come in and collide, one right into another. Imagine, for those of you at home, like cars crashing into each other head on. It doesn't seem to make sense, but what most of the time happens in particle colliders is they hit each other and they come out at 90 degrees. Mm. So they, it's like if two cars come together in an intersection and they pop out at 90 degrees to each other in, in any angle in three dimensions, any sure. azimuthal angle in, right. in three dimensions. So when things come in, they actually really do kind of spray straight up and oh, down okay. most of the time. If I had a chalkboard, I could tell you why, but it doesn't really matter. I just take my word for it. <laughs> but some of them barely interact at all, and they come off at a super small angle. It's like they've interacted with each other but they've, they've scattered by like a trillionth of a degree or something like that. They've left the beam line, but they're, they're moving in what's called the forward direction. Right? So it's like if you're looking down the beam, it, it scatters, but it just barely goes off and it heads, continues heading forward. So that's going to miss most of the detector. In fact, it might go right out the hole that we've made in the side of the thing in order to let the beam in. So the idea was to build a secondary detector way far away from the main detector, like 210 meters away. It's a big thing. It's 17 miles around. To pick up these things that just barely scattered off of each other. And the, uh, the upside is that there's a ton of particles that do that, but sometimes the protons themselves, they haven't even like been broken apart. Like the protons come off of each other and they've exchanged particles but the quark, you know, we never dissociated the quarks, we never dissociated the gluons. You're not going to see a lot of what you think of as like, you know, Ws and Zs and quarks and hadrons and all this sort of stuff coming out. What you're going to see is an odd collection of, of protons that have exchanged particles called pomerons, right, which is sort of another thing that we could talk about another time. But it, it's a, it was a way of looking at this sort of very specific interaction uh, kind of for free. Right? No, it was sort of physics that was invisible. Particles are scattering that way anyway. All we needed was this detector um, to be set up way far away from the normal interaction point to sort of uh, gobble up all of these events. And it, 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 it was sort of very tricky because the, the particle collider runs super fast. Like A lot of people don't realize just how much goes on in it, but the, the number of collisions is millions of collisions per second. We don't record them all, but when it all filters down, I think it's like 25 me it's running like 25 megahertz, which means 25 million times per second particles are colliding together and running out of the detector. Okay? Now do the math on the particles moving at the speed of light. If you're doing 25 million interactions per second, some of the particles that collide at one moment are still leaving the detector when the next bunch is colliding. Right. So when you see that picture of the Higgs where you see all the particles, that's like a slice in time where we've removed the parts that were the people moving out of the bus station in the first part and the next round coming in. You're just seeing that event kind of cut out. Mm. So now imagine if you have a detector that's 210 meters away, how do you know which 
one, it, it's in coincidence with. Is it, so you need a, a very good coincidence timer in yeah. order to associate those events with which collision happened in the detector. That's a, that's a technical problem that was solved by some of these great experimentalist guys you know, that I work with. And, mm-hmm. You know, it, it needed work done on the detector, it needed to be modeled, you know, it needed to, you know, sort of those sort of things. And so I, I worked on that for, for a while. That's amazing. And so what, what is, I guess, the Large Hadron Collider in general smashes particles together, right? It's a particle collider. It collides protons and protons, protons. and also it collides ions together when it's not doing that, yeah. Okay. So where did the idea to... I mean, I know there have been other particle accelerators and colliders both in the United States and elsewhere. Yep. Uh, I, this is the biggest one, of course. But where did the idea to first do that come from, or who did it come from, or why? Oh. Why? Well, why was it thought that okay, you know, maybe if we smash protons together or ions together and detect the what comes off of them, uh, that we'll be able to figure something out about particle physics? So that's a good. That's sort of a good. Que- I mean, no, it is a good question. It's kind of a going to probably be an unsatisfactory answer, sure. you know. But you know, back in the day, we built a linear collider in Stanford, and it yeah. collided electrons together. And you know, you, colliding electrons together is is tricky because you have to accelerate them in straight lines because they emit radiation when they bend, and you can only have so much energy, and, and so on and so forth. And then eventually, we built this collider in um, in. Uh, outside of Chicago called Fermilab, and that's a different kind of collider, right? Fermilab, when it was running the Tevatron, um, it collided protons with antiprotons, right? But you can't buy antiprotons, as they say. You can't even get them at Walmart. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to make them, right? And the trick is making antimatter is just about the most expensive thing you can do in the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a trillions of dollars an ounce, we don't make it by the ounce, right? We make a few of them at a time, a few molecules at a time. So, uh, and then you have to store them and, and collect them, and then they run off and, and, and you put them in the collider. I mean, the big advantage of that is that if you have a magnet system set up, protons and antiprotons will automatically accelerate in opposite directions because they have opposite charges. Right. So one ring inside the Tevatron accelerates both sets of particles in opposite directions. And they actually kind of weave in and out of each other as they go around through something called Betatron oscillations. It's, it's really neat. But you limit the total number of collisions that you can do because you have to make the antimatter and fill up, you know, fill up the collider and then collide them until they're gone and then make some more and, and stuff. And so what it was decided when they needed to go to higher energy was that they would collide protons on protons because protons are easy and free. Uh, but you have to essentially build two colliders sitting on top of each other. There are two rings inside of the LHC mm. that accelerate in different directions and have the magnets work in, in different ways. And then they get pulled together in the interaction points. But there actually was something in between. right? Between the Tevatron and the LHC, there was supposed to be another collider in Texas yeah, uh, called the Superconducting Super Collider in Waxahachie. And it would have run, had it been built, at uh, 40 TeV. Uh, which is roughly, the, the, the LHC was designed to run at 14. It hasn't quite got there yet because of some uh, issues with the magnets. So it would have been much, much more powerful. Mm. Uh, and it, much, much larger. It would have been 54 miles around. 
uh, and a lot of different states tried to, to get it located there. When I was down at Florida State, uh, Jeff Owens told a great story about the bid that Florida put in uh, to get the collider built. It would have been just north of Jacksonville, he told us, but that Texas just really went all out and tried to get that uh, that collider uh, built there. They set up, re you know, they, they set aside money in the state budget for, for universities and faculty and, mm -hmm. and all this sort of stuff. And Congress went for it. I think the, the project was going to cost $4 billion, which, you know, honestly does sound like a lot of money, but it's not when it comes to big science. It's, right. it's not $4 billion every year. It's $4 billion over a certain amount of time. Uh, but there were some shortcomings in the design, and at some point they realized they could make the thing much, much better, but it would double in price. And that happens in government things. Uh, but Congress said no, Rather than build it, let's just cancel it. But they did end up spending essentially the same amount of money to not build it. So that you know, because that's how contractors work. You know, mm -hmm. you hire them, and then if you don't cancel in enough time, you pay them anyway. Mm. I always sort of hate that idea wow. that we paid four billion dollars for this thing we didn't get. Yeah. They dug the tunnel. They had to fill it back in. They now grow mushrooms in part of it, and and there's still mushrooms? like <laughs> <laughs> like the kind you get at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. But it, it uh, it's just uh, it's, it's sort of sad. So mm -hmm. the the Europe had wanted, you know, everybody wanted to build this thing because the Higgs, like I said, it can only be so heavy. It, 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 this is another sort of sticking point. With a, if you go to a talk on Higgs and say, well, you know, 20 years ago before we knew what it was, say, well, we have to build a large hadron collider because the Higgs has to weigh more than this, or we would have seen it, and it has to weigh less than this, or and then they kind of drift off, and you're never quite sure what they're talking about. And what they were talking about is that the Higgs wouldn't do what we thought it would do, which is actually not entirely true. It wouldn't do it on a chalkboard. It would be a non-perturbative thing, and it doesn't matter what that means in, in context. But all it said is that we had this kind of no-lose situation. We build the detector, and we either see the thing, or we've ruled out a huge part of the standard model, and it was, it was, a, it was a definite goal, and it, it could be done with a collider of a certain size. Mm -hmm. And it was a race at that point. Plus, we'd learn everything else. So uh, over the course of 30 years, you know, CERN put the, the time and money in to design this thing and, and actually uh, build it. They had the, the, they had the tunnel already. There used to be another collider in that tunnel called LEP, the, the uh, Large Electron-Positron Collider. And it ran, I mean, they turned it off in the year 2000, I remember, because I was in graduate school at the time, and they started to see that, because LEP was an electron-positron collider, that maybe they were seeing the Higgs. And it was literally like days before they had to pull the plug so they could pull the thing out of the tunnel and build the new collider. Right. Like, you could imagine the bulldozers waiting outside and guys with cups of coffee and donuts waiting to go in and pull this thing out of the ground, because that's literally what was happening. Yeah. And they're like, every hour we run it, we can, you know, we might find the Higgs. And if we get it wrong and then someone else discovers it, you know, they're going to write that on our tombstones. You know, we're never going to live this down. But they made the right call. Uh, it, it, what they were seeing would not have been the Higgs. It was just a statistical an anomaly, and it was the right call to, to pull it out. Yeah. One, of, one of my old friends in grad school, Robert Truck, you know, he, he used to say that that's actually the essence of making a decision. <laughs> um, decisions are made with imperfect knowledge. Mm -hmm. If you knew what was going on, that's a choice. <laughs> if they chose to turn it on knowing they had seen the Higgs, that's different. Right. But given what they knew at the time, it was a risk. 
and they did turn out to make the right decision. So it, I got to say, it was no one thing, but everybody kind of has a collider kind of going. You know, the U.S. might want to build another linear collider. They might want to build a super tevatron. Might want to build a neutrino detector, you know, under this gold mine in, in, in Minnesota. Japan has a linear collider, had a linear collider. They might want to build another one. They tend to be good at these things. Or a neutrino detector to make their super Kamikande experiment better. Or something. So everybody kind of has one of these things going on. And I don't know what's going to go in the, the current science budget. Um, the current administration seems very much interested in putting people on Mars, mm -hmm. which is certainly going to take a big chunk of money. And I'm not sure it's a, and as much as I love space exploration, I'm not sure that's a good use of money, putting a person on Mars. Right. There's still a lot to be learned from unmanned space probes. Sure. But I could be wrong about that. You know, I, I don't do that for a living. Mm -hmm. But there's no one good answer as to why the LHC was built. But right. it came about because some things failed and there was this idea that it would either find something and revolutionize physics, or it would not find something, and that would also revolutionize physics. Right. And I guess to maybe answer the question, like, okay, now you found it, now what? I guess there's never there's never a real answer right away for these things, right? I guess when in 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 the the twenties when quantum physics was picking up steam, I guess no one really knew all of the technology that would come downstream. Yeah. From it, right? So something like this, it's, it's I guess, for the, the long-term public good, I guess is the way to put it. You, you could easily um, uh, ca you know, couch the argument that way. You know, as a high-energy physicist, we kind of have this ultimate trump card when people say, what have you done for us lately? Mm -hmm. Because we invented the World Wide Web. Right? So, you know, Tim Berners-Lee, he was a physicist, a high-energy physicist at CERN, who wrote... The idea for web for the web because he wanted to share physics data, easy, right. in a in a in a kind of open system. Right. Our entire economy is built on top of this. I mean, like, I was listening to the radio this morning. And they were talking about how broadband internet should be regulated as a as a utility, you know, like electricity and water, and you shouldn't have you know this. this you should have this net neutrality because if otherwise. Um, you know, you would have preferential treatment. And the way I look at that argument is, is often because, like, well, yeah, you can't interact with the government anymore or, you know, public services or your utilities through a phone call or the mail anymore. It's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. You have to do it through the web. And so if our right. government is going to rely on the web in order for us to pay our taxes and, you know, all that, then uh, it's got to be a utility. We all have Absolutely. to have equal yeah. um, access to these things. So, mm -hmm. you know, Particle physics tends to have a pretty high uh, return on investment when it comes to, sure. to technologies, yeah. uh, you know, when it comes to, to do dollars and cents. But what I think of when I'm asked this question of what have you done for us lately is it, it goes back to this old quote by, um, by uh, Robert Wilson, who was the first director of Fermilab. And when he was asked, uh, before they had built Fermilab back in the, in the 70s, you know, what, what is this lab going to be? Uh, does it have anything to do with national defense? You know, before that, they had known a place like Los Alamos or Oak Ridge mm -hmm. or Sandia. All of these national labs had something to do with national security and national defense. And here's Fermilab, nothing like that. Particle physics, nothing, nothing like that exists in particle physics. And, and the senator, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but the senator's like, what does this have to do with national defense? And, and Robert Wilson on the floor of the Senate, like, nothing. 
Does this nothing to do with national defense? Nope. Does he mean there's nothing at all? And he says, well, it has to do with how we value ourselves, what we think of as great art, what we think of as culture and, and science, what it means to be an American. And his, 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 he ends it by saying, it has nothing to do with the defense of this country except making it worth something to defend. Mm. And that kind of swayed their opinion. You know, it wasn't entirely knowledge for knowledge's sakes. It certainly has many applications. Sure. And, you know, if you wanted to count up how much money was spent and how much money was made, it's a winner. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably six or seven times over a winner. But how many things are left where we get to discover something new about the universe? Right? right. Before 2000, we didn't know dark matter, dark energy was as large as it was. And you know, now we have a detector that, if it's supersymmetry, could find out what it's made out of. Right. That'll never come again. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of how I look at it. You, yeah. No matter how you look at it, I don't think there's a way to lose with these things. Yeah. So for your graduate work, you actually started looking at the Higgs boson. You were studying the, the Higgs boson, which at that point was a theoretical yep. entity. How amazing was it for you when it was finally announced that they discovered it? Well, for, it, I mean, for for any physicist that worked on it, I'm sure it was exciting. But yeah. for someone who spent uh, quite a quite a, a huge chunk of my life, exactly. Yeah. Well, it it was really I don't want to even say bittersweet. It was just sweet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, my PhD advisor, his advisor was Peter Higgs. Wow. Right, so wow. <laughs> I have this kind of personal uh, connection uh, right. uh, to, to to it, and um, but I, I actually studied a supersymmetric version of the Higgs. So mm-hmm. what I actually am an expert in, or was at the time, has not been found, nor I don't I think see. it will, because I don't I don't think supersymmetry is right. I mean that that's what I wrote my thesis on, because that's what, it, what was important. But you know, it it uh, it was just like kind of vindication for, for everything that had been through and that the world was still a little bit a little bit stranger than, than we thought. If the Higgs could have been at any energy, why did it happen to be so close to what should have been the maximum in supersymmetry? Why did it have the properties? And, of course, we're still nailing down some of it. I don't want to say that there's a huge number of people who think that this particle is not the standard model Higgs, but there's aspects of it that we haven't completely measured. Like I said, I don't think anyone is expecting it to be weird, but it could, you know, there's still pieces of it that would be better understood at a linear collider if we build one and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's still some, some unanswered questions, but sure. it, when it comes to this, again, this idea of the jigsaw puzzle, the Higgs was like a corner piece that really helped us get an idea of what was going on, mm-hmm. but certainly not the whole part. There's still pieces that don't fit together right, and there's still there's still some major pieces uh, that are missing. But it was just, it it just felt like everything that we'd been talking about for years and years kind of paid off. Sure. Yeah. So, but you mentioned your, uh, you so your graduate work was on the supersymmetry, or super symmetrical equivalent of the Higgs boson. That's right. Uh, so how how did you get interested in Supersymmetry, or the Higgs, or physics in general. Where, how far back do you recall, kind of thinking that oh, oh th- th- this is something I should pursue? Okay, um, so <clears throat> I grew up in Phoenix, and um, I mean I wasn't born there, but I I grew up there, and my father's family 
grew up, uh, he grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, we would go visit them once or twice a year, so uh, in a car. So that's a, a three-day car trip. Mm. And uh, as is my favorite joke driving across the American Southwest, it's pretty, but it's like watching a television that's turned off. You know, it's, uh, there's not, I mean, it is very, very striking, but after a while, there's just nothing to do. And in between cities back in the day, uh, <laughs> I'm not that old, but no radio, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you get far away from any radio station, no satellite radio. No electronics in cars. There were no iPads or anything like that. So you kind of had your thoughts and whatever tapes you had in the car. Um, so what we'd do is we'd stock up on magazines and um, uh, to sort of read or redo each other. Uh, my, my father and my brother and I, as we drive, drove around. And I remember one summer um, kind of finding two articles kind of very close to each other that kind of inspired me. Um, one was an article in Omni magazine uh, that a guy named Lee Smolin had written about what he called gosh numbers. And uh, this article was said like, oh, because you, you look at these numbers and you say like, gosh, why are they like that? Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, <laughs> I, I, I met Lee now, and I think he's a really interesting uh, and amazing guy. And if I read that article today, I probably wouldn't have the effect on me as it did then because it was a... Omni Magazine is sort of like the New Yorker for science fiction. It had stories, it had cartoons, but it's still also very kind of fringy science, and the science writers at the time didn't get a lot right. I don't know how happy he ever was with this article. But it got me thinking, wow, this guy's thinking about, like, what happens inside black holes and what is this nature of the universe and all these kind of stuff that as a teenager kind of really uh, appeals to you. And then, uh, and then uh, another article like a couple months later that I, I got in the car from uh, about a guy named uh, Dim- Dimitri Nanopoulos, who's a, a famous uh, theoretical physicist. Uh, and he was talking about kind of particle physics stuff and how they were studying uh, the universe. Uh, and this was an article in, uh, in Discover magazine. And kind of those two things together kind of pointed me towards mm. wanting to do science. And then my junior year of high school... The summer, I went and I lived in France. Uh, I was an exchange, I was part of an exchange program. And I only brought one book with me, um, which was called uh, The God Particle by Leon Letterman. Mm. And uh, uh, I just thought everything, this, oh, one, this book is hilarious if you've never read it. Leon Letterman's uh, brother was a stand-up comedian, and, and so he's got a lot of good jokes yeah. and a lot of interesting sort of view on science and science history. He talks, there's all these great personal stories about Rutherford and, and all of these guys and what they were like and the book is about finding the Higgs you know and, and funding for particle physics and stuff and so as I as I sort of put these things together and then when I went to college I, I actually I went to the college Leon Letterman taught at or so they said I only saw him a couple times <laughs> he's a Nobel laureate I saw him a few times mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I was there and then I went off to, to graduate school and and I wanted to do theoretical physics, and so the, the project kind of just kind of fell into it. It almost but didn't happen, because right before I started work on the Higgs, there was a huge announcement about um, this quantity called G minus 2, and this has to do with the spin of the muon, the anomalous magnetic moment of the muon, and it was, it, I mean, it'll sound funny now, but it was in, there was some insanely small discrepancy in what was predicted versus what was measured, Right like a part in a, part in a billion or something. But the error bars were super small, so this looked to be very important. 
In fact, I, I should dig it up for you because if you look at the original paper for this, because of this jigsaw puzzle, everything's connected, they say in the first draft of this paper that the reason the G minus 2 anomaly is off by two parts in a billion or something is because of the effects of a supersymmetric particle in some three-loop graph for, for this uh, sort of thing, that, that this is evidence that there's supersymmetry out there at about 400 GeV, which is wrong, right? <laughs> I'm pointing at that paper with all yeah. the results on it. So uh, it, um, I almost worked on that, uh, having to do with a certain correction, having to do with the hadronic contribution, which doesn't matter. But then uh, my advisor's like, nah, that's too much. I'm working on this thing with Higgs, so let's, uh, let's just do that. And I sort of never look back. Mm. In your PhD experience, as because I'm uh, my current experience has just been working in a kind of biomedical research biology wet lab. So any sort of uh, advice that I guess you could give to a, a biology student might differ a little bit from an advice that you would give to a physics PhD student. Uh, so what specific advice could you offer a prospective or a current physics PhD student if they feel like things are not going their way or mm -hmm. there, there's mm -hmm. some struggles or could you share something that maybe you, you face as an unexpected hurdle um, during your time as a student? Well, I guess I can cobble together a few pieces of advice. Um, if you feel things aren't going well uh, because you don't feel smart enough or that you think everyone else is better or you don't get it or whatever, I would say everyone else feels exactly the same and they're not saying it, okay? There's a huge imposter syndrome in this field. And even now as a professor, I feel it. And even if I won awards, I would feel it. I often feel that I'm not um, the least smart person in a room because people know about things that I don't know anything about, right? You know, that's sort of like... When I talk to other physicists, I feel fine mm -hmm. because they know what I know. But when I talk to people who are experts in other fields, then I feel like I should know what they know. Why? I didn't study these things, but that's just the way I feel. Mm -hmm. um, if you're having trouble finding a project or thinking about things, what I would recommend is go to, go to colloquium and go to symposiums and, and, and go to talks. Go to as many talks as, as you have time for. Um, at my graduate school, Cian Yang was there, and he used to say going to colloquium is like going to church. Even if you don't agree with the guy, it's good for you to go. <laughs> and uh, that you your time is not wasted listening to other people present sort of scientific level, scientific American level talks on, on subjects. It gives you ideas, mm -hmm. helps you see um, connections with things. Um, uh, specifically, it's hard, it's hard to have two masters. So this is just awful advice, but, you know, it's just, if you're in a PhD program, you got to put it first. You, you have to do your PhD work to the exclusion of other things, mm -hmm. and that may mean that you, you're, you're not going to date, or you're, you have to have a partner that's very understanding of the amount of time involved. Right. It's very hard to have work. It's very hard to have long commutes unless you, you are very good at them, like if it's on a train where you can do other things or mm -hmm. if it's on a bus where you can have kind of these long thoughts. Right. But you kind of got to 
show your face all the time. People need to see you there. They need to think of you there. It's going... Um, when I first went to graduate school, I remember I worked 103 days in a row. The first 103 days I was there, every day I was in the office from the day I got there till the day of Thanksgiving, the first uh, the break when, when, I, when I left for the first time. And the day I was gone, I missed it. You know, it was just part of it. And, and you're not going to love every moment of it. Sure. But if you're hating every moment of it, that's something else. Yeah. Right? Every, every degree has its kind of crummy, crummy parts and, and things you'd rather not do. But if that's overwhelming you because it wasn't what you thought it was or, or something like that, then beginning rather than the end is the time to re- reconsider the, mm-hmm. these things. Graduate schools want you to be happy. Graduate schools want you to finish. Right. More than anything, they want right. you to finish your degree. And if you're not on course to do that for whatever reason, you should talk to them about you know, what you need to get it done, whether right. it's uh, TAing a different class mm-hmm. or, or grading instead of TAing or, or, or more, more teaching instead of this or that, or taking time in the summer you know, to go home and read a bunch of, of books mm-hmm. you know, on your subject to kind of bring you back up to speed. Um, specifically, I would say those are kind of take-home messages from, from, from grad school. Great. I think that's fantastic advice. And well, thanks. This has been a kind of a mind-blowing, fascinating conversation. I learned a lot. So I just want to thank you very much for joining me and cool. chatting with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Termination of Current Scientist, the human episode. Stay breezy.